0: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the Book of Numbers. the The Israelites did not trust God to bring them into the Promised Land. God had showed mercy by promising to bring everyone younger than 21 into the Land of Promise. God was still trying to draw them deeper into a relationship with Him, but there were many still with rebellious hearts. We join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 16, verse 1.
1: I always wondered, like, why is rebellion like the sin of witchcraft? Like, why does Samuel say that? And why is stubbornness like idolatry? Well, it's interesting when you compare the two, witchcraft is looking for a supernatural message from someone other than the Lord, right? You're consulting a medium or a dead person or something like that, a spirit or a demon. Well, idolatry is worshiping something other than the Lord as well. Rebellion is rejecting an appointed authority. So when I look for a supernatural word of truth from someone other than the Lord, if I look for it from myself, I'm rejecting his words and therefore his authority to govern my life. It's the same thing as witchcraft. I'm looking for answers somewhere else. Stubbornness is a repeated refusal to listen to someone besides myself. So when I refuse to listen to the Lord and do what I want instead, in essence, I'm worshiping myself. It's like idolatry. That's where the comparison lies. What's interesting is when we get to number 16, we're going to see both of these attitudes on display in this chapter. May they not be found in us. Or if they are... May this be a night where we fix that. So number 16, verse 1. Remember, they have just had their whole problem with the promised land where they don't go in. They don't trust the Lord. As the Lord says, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They are not happy. They are crabby people. They are not yielded to the Lord yet, but they have begun that journey of wandering in the wilderness. Now, God has been seeking to draw them to himself. And so chapter 15, we saw all these promises about how, hey, here's the rules for when you get into the land that will be different than the way things are now. So he reminds them, I'm going to keep my promise, and I want you to be near to me. Well, it doesn't work real well for some people. They're still angry. So chapter 16, verse 1, we're going to meet a lovely man named Korah. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation men of renown, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, you take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift you up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. So here we find that Moses' authority and Aaron's authority is questioned here. Who are the instigators? Well, this first individual, Korah, he is a Kohathite. Now remember the Levites, they were responsible for the tabernacle. Now there were three different types of of Levitical families, and they had three different tasks. The Kohathite who Korah is a part of, they were the ones responsible for all the tabernacle furniture. So they were the ones that carried the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, altars, all that kind of stuff. Pretty prestigious position. In fact, they got closer to the inside of the tabernacle than anybody else did. These guys were responsible for that. So this guy's a pretty high up guy. The other three guys are sons of Reuben. So they're from a different tribe. He's a Levite, Korah is. These other three guys are Reubenites. Now remember, Reuben is the firstborn. So this is the firstborn tribe. But remember, They don't have that privilege. They're disqualified from leading by Jacob on his deathbed, remember? And it passed to Judah. They don't have that preeminent place in the nation anymore. These are some guys who have some status in the nation, but they don't have top dog status. There's four of them mentioned, I bring that up because three of them will take center stage as we go through the passage, but Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and this guy named On. It also says they took men. The word there took means to persuade to join. So four of these guys come up with a conspiracy and they persuade some other men to join them. In what? Verse 2. And they rose up, literally means to stand up to someone's face. They're going to confront Moses. They rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel. So how many did they influence and persuade to join their cause? Two hundred and fifty princes of the assembly, leaders. In the nation. 250 leaders in the nation. And these guys are famous, which means they're not just leaders who are self appointed leaders. The word there means that they've been chosen by, famous means they've been chosen by the people. These are folks that everybody in the nation looks up to. We don't look up to our congressmen today, sadly, but these are the same type of thing. These are people who were voted in because we thought they'd do a good job. These are people that, by their community, they were tabbed by their community and said, You lead us. You're good people. You have a good reputation. You're good guys. So these are our men that people look up to and follow. This is a pretty daunting group that is approaching Moses. What we see here, Korah's mentioned first, and he's going to kind of be the center name here. What we see is one man, one disgruntled man, influences three other men who influenced 250 other men to confront Moses about something. And do you see how that's how it got from bad to worse? You may think you're complaining to other people isn't doing any harm, but sometimes you got to check your own heart and figure out, Why are you complaining publicly to somebody? Because you can stumble them and they might come down that road with you and have a bad attitude as well. Be careful with that. What was their problem? Well, it says they gathered themselves against Moses and Aaron. So this is a two-pronged accusation and assault. They want governing authority and spiritual authority over the nation. Moses was the governing authority. Aaron had spiritual authority as the head of the, the priestly family. So they are upset with these guys because they have that authority. And that's what they say, you take too much upon you. Literally, it means you have taken an excessive amount of authority. Both of you have too much authority. And then they say, why have you presumed to be more qualified to lead than the rest of us? They said, listen, why do you take an excess of authority upon you seeing all the congregation of the Lord are holy? Holy means like set apart for God's use. They've all been set apart for God's use, every one of them. And the Lord is among them too, not just with you guys. So why do you lift up yourselves above the congregation?" Authority is an interesting concept when you look at it from the scripture. It really is. And and when you look at it and how the world views it, society, when I say the world, just how society, t- and there's all different views on how authority works. Some people think there should be no authority, like anarchists. They just think, you know, just let it rip, man. Everything, whatever happens, happens, right? And, and they'd leave me alone. Let me do my thing. And every, every if everybody did that for everybody, everybody'd be fine. That's insane. But some people think that way. They think there should be no authority. What's interesting is that there are those in the church who think that way. There should just be a huge free for all. Should be no pastor, no leaders. We should just come together and the Spirit will just direct us. If we're really Spirit filled, if we're all really holy and the Lord's among us, then we'll just know what to do. Yeah, I-, I love how those work out. I've seen churches where things are like that and they don't work out because people aren't like that. God appoints leaders. Authority is something interesting though. Some people take it and wield it like a weapon. I'm in charge and they bludgeon you down. Others connive their way to acquiring authority, and they hold it over people like a headsman's axe because they've earned it. They've worked their way there, and they're like, now you gotta toe the line because I'm in charge. The word authority in the Bible means the right or the freedom to act. And Jesus described it as something given by God. It's wielded in the same way and as an ambassador speaks for a king. It's authority that doesn't exist in and of themselves, but as an appointed servant. Therefore, the biblical definition of authority and therefore true authority is not something taken, stolen, or self-appointed. What's interesting, you know who does things like that? Squatters and bullies. They say, this is my place, my house. But no, 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 it's my home. I have a lease for this. No, it's mine now. They're a squatter. It doesn't belong to them, but they say it's theirs. They're going to stay there. Or bullies. This is my playground. This is my spot. Well, we're all here. Why can't we all share? Too bad, my spot. Squatters and bullies either steal, take, or connive their way to authority. Biblical authority is given. And that means a true leader is a submitted one. A true leader is yielded to the Lord because their goal in leading is to bring his people closer to him. That holds true whether you're a parent, a business owner, a church, or a community leader. If you don't see authority that way, then one of two things will happen. You'll either become a tyrant or you'll become a puppet of men. Servanthood, leadership, that type of authority is the only way that it works correctly. Any other way of viewing authority means you'll become a tyrant or a puppet of men and neither is the goal of God's appointments. If we define authority this way, which the Bible does, then it has absolutely, authority has absolutely nothing to do with who's better for the job, right? It has absolutely nothing to do with who's better for the job. I haven't earned my spot as the pastor, okay? I didn't earn the spot to be here. I'm like, well, you guys are not as spiritual as me, or you can't teach the Bible as well as I can, so that's why I'm here, and you're not. Truth be told, I have been blown away by sometimes when I I hear people share, and I think, what in the world am I doing behind this thing? that person should be here. I mean, that was amazing. They have incredible gifting and insight and wisdom and maturity. But that's not how God chooses. See, the difference between Moses and the rest of the people wasn't his training, his intelligence, or his ability. It was quite simply God's call. That was the only difference. God called Moses and he didn't call them. And that's what makes Moses holy or set apart for this task. Now, it's interesting if they'd taken a little bit of time to get to know Moses, or even just bothered to ask him about his burning bush experience, they'd have learned that he turned down the position multiple times. He wasn't grasping for this authority. He didn't take this authority. He didn't want the authority. In fact, he quits on multiple occasions. But they didn't. They didn't take the time to do any of that. May I say tonight, if you're constantly critical of your boss, or your folks, or your community leaders, or your church leaders, may I just gently say to you that I think you have a rebellious heart? The Bible says that we're too Submit ourselves to the authorities. You say, well, they're not doing a good job. Are you surprised? Who's perfect? God didn't put them there because they're doing a good job. He put them there because God is a God of order and structure. And he calls sometimes for reasons we'll never understand. And the truth is, if you're really concerned about a person's leading, you'll take it to the Lord. Which means if you're going to take them to the Lord, you have to expose yourself to God as well so that he can deal with any pride or selfishness in your heart. Now, you know what I found when I do that? Because I'm just like you. I see things that go on and go, why? Why are they there? They're inefficient or they are not competent or you just, you don't know how you're just, they're annoying. (laughs) I know some of you probably think that about me. My pastor's annoying. We should definitely get a different one. I find myself annoying most of the time. So I get it. No, no offense taken. But you know what I found when I take it to the Lord? I find myself praying for that person I've been critiquing. I find myself giving them the benefit of the doubt instead of assuming the worst about why they're doing what they're doing. I find myself trying to find ways to support them instead of stewing over what I think I'd do better than them or what they could do better themselves. But as we look here, Korah and the rest of these guys aren't doing any of that. And so what's interesting is they accuse Moses of the very thing they were doing. Moses, you've overreached, you've grasped and seized too much authority, but that's what they're actually doing right now but they were doing it under the pretense of the people's good. And that's the worst kind of complainer. I've done this long enough that I know when someone says, well, everybody's upset, it means two people. It means two people, it means them and somebody else. Everybody means them and one more person because someone else verbalized it, so everybody must be thinking it. So when I hear that, well, people are upset, people are talking, and I'm like, okay, so two people are talking because you're the first person I've heard it from. Might there be more? Of course, yes, there might be more. But that is a dangerous way to approach a situation. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to levy your argument as heavier, because other people agree with you. And that means you're trying to manipulate the situation the way you want it to be. And that is not the heart of the Lord. Even Moses, when he was off, what did the Lord do? He would say, come here, Moses. And he talked to him, right? I've had those moments when the Lord hit me by a two, with a two-by-four. Do you know what? He never did it in front of anybody else. Like, he never got me in a way that everybody's like, ooh, Pastor Will. He gets me in a way that it's me and him, in a way that is easy to receive. And when I can say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm ashamed of what I've done or I'm ashamed of my attitude right now or where I'm at right now with you and not praying enough, wherever it might be. And I don't want to be that way anymore. So that the door is wide open for me to come back and to walk the path he wants me to walk. But when you begin to levy pressure, I think you got to check your heart because a lot of times you just don't like the way things are. And you haven't really even gone to the Lord about that person and poured your heart out to him, to the Lord for them. Your heart isn't for them. You're not for them yet. If your heart's not for them yet, I don't know if you're ready to make a complaint to them yet. This is how they come. And how does Moses respond? Verse 4, and when Moses heard it, he took it to the Lord, he fell upon his face. And I can't think of a better reaction to such criticism than taking it to the Lord. We'll see later how much their words stung Moses, but he doesn't lash out, he doesn't defend himself, he doesn't argue, he doesn't say, I'm the pastor, or I'm the boss. He doesn't say any of those things. And truthfully, if you constantly feel the need to defend your authority, you might want to ask the Lord if you're wielding it correctly, because you should never have to defend it. You say, but man, they're being totally unfair with Moses. Moses, he had put up with so much for them. He sacrificed so much for them. All true. But you know, God's the best judge of how to deal with that. And Jesus is a wonderful example of living that out. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 23, it says, For even hereunto were you called. This is your calling. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. How do you know what your calling is? One of your callings is to suffer, to be treated unfairly so that you can show God's love to others in the same way he loves you, in spite of them, not because of them. Who did no sin, this is Jesus, our example, who did no sin, neither was guile, deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he did not revile back. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. Here it is, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously. He took his problems to the Lord. He said, Lord, what they've done to me is unfair. Do what you need to do. And so he seeks the Lord about this. We don't know what he prayed. We don't know what he said. He may not have said anything. He may have just, in that internal part of your heart where you just cry out to the Lord, he may have done that. But when he does that, the Lord gives him instructions and we see them in verse five. Verse five, and he, Moses, spoke unto Korah and unto all the company saying, even tomorrow the Lord will show you who are his and who is holy and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him who he has chosen will he cause to come near unto him. Here, Moses says, okay, you criticize my leadership. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm going to defer to his leadership. I'm going to fall on my face and say, God, what do you want me to do with this? Which, by the way, if you are a leader in some capacity and people challenge you like that, that is the best way to handle it. Not go, oh, I know what I'm going to do about this. The best way to do it is go, Lord, what do you want me to do about this? Because right now my emotions are stirring. I want to punch him or I want to fire him or I want to this or I want to that. Say, so, Lord, what do you want me to do about this? And God does give him instructions. And it was this all right, you guys, (laughs) tomorrow we're going to have a test. And the Lord will reveal, he'll show who are his, who is holy. That's interesting. Korah and his group had said, we're all holy and we're all chosen of the Lord. Mm -mm -mm. Not true. All of them weren't holy, nor was the Lord among all of them to use them in this capacity. And God didn't choose all of them to make offerings or to govern the nation. He chose Moses and Aaron's family. You know, a good question is, had they forgotten the entire nation rebelled at the edge of the promised land? I would not very likely use the word holy to describe them at this point in time. I would not likely say, yeah, the Lord's among them right now. I don't know about that. The Lord's had to keep his distance a little bit so he doesn't wipe them out. I'm sure some had repented, but many were still angry, bitter, and unbelieving. And God had been inviting them to resubmit themselves to him. But this coup attempt is another sign that they haven't done so. We see here that Korah is the instigator because he speaks. Moses starts with him. He spoke unto Korah and his company. They are his followers right now. He's already got his own church going on right now. And so he talks to him and he says these words to him. So the Lord would show them exactly who was his and who he had chosen. How? Verse six and seven. This do. Korah, I want you to take you censors and all his company, all you guys. I want you to, every one of you get a censor. That's just like a censer is just a tray for coal. I want you to put fire inside of it. So put coals inside of it and put incense inside of it to burn from the coal before the Lord tomorrow. You're going to put incense inside it and you're going to bring it to the tabernacle tomorrow to offer it to the Lord. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord does choose, he shall be holy. Any of you guys who bring your censer and God says, I'll take that man. Then you, you can be a priest or you can lead whatever, whatever it is you want to do. You can do it. All right. And then he says, close out with you take too much upon you, you sons of Levi. Again, these would be normal trays used for household activities. So these would not be the special ones consecrated for use in the tabernacle. They didn't have enough for all of them to have these. Why would they take ones from their home? Well, to prove if they were right or if Moses was right. God had said he would only accept incense from a special censer offered by a special people, the priests. And that's the only kind he said he would accept. So now we're going to find out if God meant what he said. If they could bring a household censer and bring it in and burn incense to the Lord and he accepts it, and doesn't, doesn't kill them, then they can do it. They're okay. So the question is, are they okay to worship God however they want? Or were the instructions laid out by Moses correct? Thus proving that God did choose Moses and Aaron and not them. Now, what's interesting is what God makes this challenge here is not just to Moses and Aaron's authority, but to his authority. He says, you haven't just challenged these guys, you've challenged me because I'm the one that picked these guys and I'm the one that gave them these instructions. So you're challenging my word, not theirs. And so God makes it clear that this is what this will be about. See, Korah and his group had said, We're all God's children. We can worship any way we want. But God's instructions said, No, you can't. This is how you worship. Which is true? Well, the morning will tell. Before the morning comes and before they leave, Moses warns them. He says, You take too much upon yourself. He says, These are God's instructions, but I've got my own warning for you. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. You've forgotten who you are. You already have great privileges, you have great privileges. And you want more? Moses warns them that they've committed the exact crime that they've accused him of. And you know, why does Moses do that? Because he knows they're headed for judgment. He knows this does not end well. He actually now, after he gives that warning to everyone, he pulls a few of the instigators aside to warn them again. And so in verses 8 through 11, Moses talks to Korah. Verse 8 And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you you sons of Levi. So Korah and then some of the other Levites who were with him were part of these 250 leaders. And he says to them, by the way, this is a private conversation. This is not with all the congregation there. He says to them, seems it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you, set you apart from the congregation of Israel to bring near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. And he has brought you near to him and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you. And now you seek the priesthood also? That's why both you and all the company are gathered together here against the Lord. You're ambitious. What is Aaron that you murmur against him? Moses pulls him aside and says, your request here, your demand here, you're belittling your current ministry. When he says, here, I pray you, he's saying, please, you gotta listen to me. Don't do this, repent. Now, I love that because Moses is pleading with the very men who want him gone what a merciful man he was. I don't know if I'm merciful like that, but you know the Lord is, isn't he? How many times have we accused the Lord of things or we've done our own thing and the Lord takes us back? The Lord's gracious and patient with us, merciful to us. God help all of us who lead whatever capacity it might be to be merciful like Moses. But he says, is it but a small thing to you? The word small thing means too little or just a trifle. Is it a trifle that you you get to carry the furniture and you get to minister to God's people as they come to the tabernacle to check the sheep and to all that kind of stuff and to teach them God's word? Is that a trifle to you? Is that no big deal? No matter your position, you must never belittle it because it isn't as glorious as to what someone else is doing in your eyes. The truth is God doesn't owe you and me anything. And so anything he asks us to do is a privilege. It's a privilege to do whatever he asks us to do. And so I'd ask you, do you see your role in, in church or in your family or your job that way as a privilege from God? Sometimes I would be mad about my boss or my work situation, or whatever, and the Lord would start to convict me. And I'd be like, you know what, Lord, I have a job. <laughs> you know? There are people right now who don't have a job. What am I whining about? This week, I was invited to a pastor's luncheon, and the guest speaker was, remember the two missionaries who were taken hostage in the Philippines around 9-11? There was a terrorist organization that took them. They were in captivity for like a year, a little bit over a year. I think it was 17 months. And when the rescue attempt came from the Philippine government, the husband was shot and killed, and she was shot but lived. Well, she was a guest speaker. She was talking about all her sufferings and trials in the jungles of the Philippines traveling with these terrorists. Later on, most of those terrorists got arrested. And you know what she did? Her and her organization did? They went and they preached the gospel to them in prison. Four of them have gotten saved. I'm sitting in that seat as I'm eating my cheesecake and I'm going, what do I whine about? Why do I have nothing to whine about? Everything that God gives to us, it's a privilege. We can't look at what someone else has and think, why do I have that? (laughs) Because someone else is always going to have, someone's going to have more than you, no matter how much you have. And so he says, you guys have belittled your current ministry. But he also warns them because they have selfish ambition you know, he says in verse 10, and he has brought you near to himself. Like you're closer to God than anybody else in the nation. That's not enough for you? Why wasn't it enough? Because see, their delight wasn't in being closer to the Lord. They had selfish ambitions for something else. That was what they were looking for. And Moses tells them, when you want what you want? You want the priesthood. You think it's some glorious thing and you want it. You seek the priesthood also. You know, a good question to ask ourselves is how much will be enough? How much will be enough? I love when they, I think it was Rockefeller, they asked him, said, how much, is, how much money is enough money? He goes, just a bit more. And it's true. You know, just a bit more. Something I encourage couples when we do premarital counseling with them, as I say, decide now how you want to live your life and then stay there for the rest of your life. Because you know what happens? God begins to bless you. You begin to accumulate some things over time as you manage your money well. And then we'll start, hey, start when you get some nicer things. And then you get some more nicer things and more nicer things. I don't even know if that's proper English, but you get nicer things. And then lo and behold, you're used to nice things everywhere that you just keep getting nicer things. And now you can't afford the nicer things, but you got to maintain because you don't want to lose it. I remember we had a, a real estate agent for high-end folks who came to our church for a little bit. And she said one time, she goes, you know, half those homes at Heathrow was a big place to live back then. I don't know what it is now. Half those homes are empty. She's like, they only have one or two furnished rooms. I said, really? Why? She goes, they can't afford to put furniture in the rest of them. Everything, all the expenses to do the upkeep around there and to live there and the homeowner's fees, it's too high. By the way, if you live there, if you live in, or if you live in a nice society, I don't care. I'm not critiquing you for that. But the idea was, she goes, none of them can afford it. And she goes, I'm constantly selling homes in there because people can't live there. They can't stay there. And I'm like, man, you can live a great life if you just set where you want to live from the start, and then just enjoy that. You work towards it. And then when you get there, you enjoy it. And whatever you make extra, you just say, Lord, what do you want me to do with it? And you know what I found sometimes the Lord does with that? He says, go bless your family and do something nice. But you know what's cool? Sometimes he also says, go bless somebody else. And you can do that too. You never have to be in those chains where you're like, oh, more, more, more. And then you're like, oh, we can't maintain our lives. We would have people, remember me and Bev, we made a decision early on. We said, we want to serve the Lord full time. So we set the bar really low. And I know $21,000 a year doesn't seem like anything these days, but it wasn't that much back in the day either. And we would have people who come in and made six figures and said, we can't live on this. We don't make enough money. And we'd tell them, we say, we make $21,000 a year. And their jaw would just drop. And we would explain to them and say, you can live wherever the Lord puts you. You just have to decide to live there within your means. So... Little financial lesson for you there. But why did I say that? First Timothy six six. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Being content with where you at is a beautiful, awesome thing. And when you live for the Lord, on top of that, you are more wealthy than anybody else can be.
0: God takes sin and rebellion very seriously. We can do nothing in our own strength or power to make ourselves right with the Almighty God. And we don't have to. All we must do is trust in his finished work on the cross repent. It is never too late. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando.